From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Last week, from March 5th to 7th, a whole host of us Terra Informers stormed a conference on cities and climate change, held by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. The swarms of scientists and proliferation of policymakers left us giddy and flooded with interviews, so we're happy to report that we've got a bunch of exciting episodes lined up for your listening pleasure in the coming months. If you tune in, you'll hear the chair and co-chairs of the IPCC, leaders of non-governmental organizations, indigenous activists, data specialists, the mayor of Edmonton, radical youth, and more. That's all coming up on Terra Informa in the coming months, along with some of our reflections about the conference. This week, we'll be showcasing two representatives from climate-focused NGOs. The province of Saskatchewan recently said a hard no to the Canadian government's federal carbon pricing plan, losing $62 million of guaranteed pan-Canadian framework funding. They are the only province that has not signed the plan, and they choose not to sign because they are opposed to the mandatory federal carbon tax, a main feature of the plan. Saskatchewan believes that the cost of the tax to the economy will be too great and intends to take the federal government to court. Though a carbon tax for an industry-based economy like Saskatchewan's would amount to billions each year under the federal plan, that money would go directly back to the province as revenue to dole out as it chooses whether to reduce other taxes, subsidize social services, be paid as rebates to citizens, or to help fund transition away from a fossil fuel-dependent economy. We'll be keeping a close eye on the results of the court case to this government-to-government quarrel. The Arctic has recently had the warmest winter on record, shocking and alarming scientists globally. The high temperatures that occurred at the end of February were around 25 degrees higher than the average temperatures at this time of year, and unusually thin sea ice is reflecting this. Climate change is unequivocally the main cause of these unprecedented temperatures. For more information, look for links on our website. Myself, Charlotte Thomason, and Sydney Karbenik had the pleasure of sitting down with Annelin Priyal-Richard, the Regional Director of Global Organization Future Earth's Montreal Hub, to discuss her work, Future Earth as an organization, and the research they're doing to address global sustainability and the Anthropocene. Okay, so we're here with Anne-Hélène Perrault-Richard, and she is the Montreal Hub Director for Future Earth. So let's start with what is Future Earth and how and why was it established? Thank you. Um, Futures is an international research program on sustainability science. And our mission is to accelerate the transformations to global sustainability um, through research and innovation. So we are bringing a large community of researchers and partners to uh, work on those uh, research issues or research priorities to address the big challenges societies and the environment are facing. So why did you get involved? You mean in Cities IPCC? 
in future in teachers yeah. how did I get involved um, so I have I'm a scientist by training uh, I did some work um, I have a necrological background natural science background and I worked on environmental issues such as the changes in biodiversity and invasions uh, by uh, alien species and from there um, I had the opportunity, in fact, to get engaged in those international global research uh, networks, um, which uh, are really trying to develop collaborative research, bringing different disciplines together, and um, advancing the science in a different way than in your laboratories. And from there, I wanted to really align a bit better, uh, in fact, the science I was doing with um, those um, societal challenges and so it's how I got involved into Diversitas first which is the was the International Program on Biodiversity Science where in fact I was uh, trying to facilitate this collaborative international interdisciplinary science on biodiversity and making it more um, transferable, accessible to policy and decision makers. And then uh, Futures, I think, has been uh, the house of several of these international uh, global environmental change networks coming together to really work one step further in terms of interdisciplinarity and in terms of engaging with the different societal actors. So not only policy, but also practice. All right, so the Anthropocene is one of the main research agendas of Future Earth. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about first the Anthropocene itself and then the Seeds of Good Anthropocene's project. So in fact, um, <clears throat> our community has worked on what we call the global environmental changes. So climate change, biodiversity changes and so on for several decades now. And what we, um, what the research has informed us is that in fact most of these changes are um, due to humans, so human populations and their impact on the environment. Doesn't mean that it is the only one. There is also some gradual on, and, and natural changes occurring, like we know that there's been some areas where we had glaciations or the one where we had a higher temperature and so on, but the changes we are currently seeing are driven by human activities. So that's what we call this new era in the Anthropocene. And it's why also, in fact, um, we wanted to really um, bring not only the environmental changes, but all the societal changes that are also related to the, the environmental ones. So it's also why we talk about the, the Anthropocene. Now, as I mentioned, it's the impact of human society, uh, societies so, and usually negative impacts on the environment. But we have the opportunity also to do positive impact on the environment. And that's the goal of the Seeds of the Good Anthropocene, is to showcase that, yes, societies can damage, but yes, societies can also provide opportunities, innovative ways, and that we can have um, some uh, development, human well-being, with uh, safeguarding at the same time our planet and all the services it provides to our societies. So that's um, really the good of 
the good Anthropocene was to harvest, in fact, examples in really different domains. It can be in good governance, it can be in urban settings, it can be in um, biodiversity conservation and climate change action, in any of these kind of, of topics, but finding uh, positive examples of actions. And, and then conducted some assessments um, and, and analysis of these case studies to see if there are some transferable lessons learned and if we can also promote these and, and give ideas to others. Okay, so let's talk science communication. How do you communicate the most important information to the most people in an era that some have dubbed the post-truth era? Hard. <laughs> um, I, I think the key word in, in this uh, post-truth era is really about education. That a lot of that, we, we are flooded by information from social media, from medias, from your own community. Um, and what is really key now is to be able to analyze this information coming to you, to develop a critical sense, in fact, of, of where does it come from and, and, and so on. And that's where I think a lot has to be done. So in some um, countries, the educational system is still well in place, um, but in many countries there is a lot of, of efforts to be done, in fact, to educate and make sure that we develop this critical sense um, for the young generation. Um, I think as well is that in terms of the communication itself, it's, it's really complicated. So it's where we need some um, organization who can plan the interface between the communities. Because it will not address the decision makers at the city level and at the international level potentially in the same way because they may not be interested in the same thing. You will not address practice or NGOs in the same way that you address younger generation, for example. Um, and, and what is key is to try to find some innovative ways of communicating, in fact, some of your key research results. So, and it's by diversifying that, that that it can work and building trust among people as well, that people know that the information you can provide them is based on, for example, science evidence. So that's really important. So I would say that our communication is really different if we are engaging, but one word, keyword is engagement with people engagement in processes like IPCC. Um, we have also the Anthropocene magazine, which aims at providing some uh, informa digested information to a broader public, not the, not the general public, but some people who are interested already and have a bit of knowledge about um, environmental issues, but that diversification and a lot of, of, of um, now of projects are done around visualization. So how do you visualize, for example, uh, information related to cities? And that's really easy to communicate to many people.
So just wondering if you can elaborate on knowledge action networks within Future Earth and their benefit to society. So the so for, for as I mentioned, futures in fact is grounded in more than thirty years of international collaborative research, and uh, <clears throat> that's what is grounded in what we call our global research projects, which are really producing this research. With the knowledge action networks, we wanted to really be our networks, which are a bit different from a purely scientific network, but bringing together scientists or researchers and um, other actors of society, people working in the private sector, in city council, in NGO, any kind, and building this network and trying to uh, really design some of the research questions, some of the projects to be developed together. It doesn't mean that it can't happen in, in what we call our global research project, because it does in some ways, but it was to focus a little bit more on these engagement aspects and action-oriented aspects. And to do this action-oriented research, we need a lot of strong disciplinary and disciplinary research, which needs also to happen. So the idea was to get those two and, and, and feeding to each other. And it's much more about a network, so really bringing people in and out when when they're interested in and when it's needed. So in your opinion, what do you think is the best project being run by Future Earth right now? That's very difficult. <laughs> and I would be crucified <laughs> by some colleagues. But um, in, in fact, our, um, we can categorize our activities around four mainstream, um, facilitation and amplification of research, uh, convening and mobilizing networks, um, sparking and promoting innovation, and turning knowledge into actions. And I will try to give you an example of something which, in fact, is related to those four streams. And it starts with one of our global research projects, which is called the Global Carbon Projects, which has built over the years a very strong and large community of um, researchers working on what we call a carbon cycle, and especially on developing methodologies and research on how to quantify, assess the different sources and sinks of carbons all around the Earth. And so this um, knowledge at some stage has um, so the, the first thing was to build that knowledge, so that facilitation of research. Then the second aspect was to bring these very interdisciplinary and international communities, so the convening a network, so people co working on terrestrial sources, on oceans, on the atmosphere, in cities, on uh, consumption patterns, so really a diverse community. And, and then um, what came obvious is that it's good to have all of this knowledge gathered, and it's a fantastic source of information, but we need a tool to really support, in fact, decision makers in their decisions. And this tool has been um, the development of the Global Carbon Budget, which is released every year, which is assessing every year where we are in terms of uh, sources and, and sink of, of carbon, and where we are in terms of meeting our um, 
the country's commitment to UNFCCC and, and the Paris Agreement, for example. So that was returning into action. This uh, this carbon budget is really a key tool now for the climate um, decision-making community, in fact, to really look at how the world is doing, how some regions are doing, how some countries are doing. So that that's really key. And, and then it's leading to something which um, may be going so as, as we are continuing developing new projects within Future Earth, and uh, now we have a, a new emerging one on decarbonizations and how um, the private sector, such as Intel, can support, in fact, uh, meeting our 1.5 or 2 degree agreement. And how uh, not only their, their business can be conducted in a way that they will emit less carbon, but also how their business can um, develop tools, pathways, avenues to support other communities, in fact, to go towards a decarbonized world. So that the kind of, it's not only one project, I would say, it's just an example of, uh, of stories, in fact, of how things build from one to each other. So climate change is an immense topic, abstract to many, but still emotionally compelling, causing us to feel fear, grief, hope, and more. You've been thinking about climate change for a while now. How has your understanding and emotional response changed in the last 10 years? So I don't know if it's emotional uh, first, but um, I think I went from a negative narrative to a positive one. And, and thanks to um, the kind of work and engagement I have been uh, luckily, I would say, uh, engaged with, in fact, so that that's really thanks to... Uh, lot of, of interaction I had, in fact, in, in, in the last 10 years. So I think that really, I think there is a lot of, of capacity, um, interest, will in different places around the world, and then there are small projects which makes a difference, um, even if we don't feel it at the global level. Um, so I would say that, yeah, that, that in a way was very positive. What is maybe right now emotionally a bit less is that here, for example, we are calling for urgency because we know it's urgent that we start taking action with the knowledge we have and that we build the missing knowledge to make sure that actions can be conducted. And still the, there's still a feeling that this urgency is not taken up. And so starting to think about our children's and wondering in what kind of world we can leave to them, that, that, that's a bit less positive, I would say. But uh, yeah, there is still hope. There is what is fantastic, for example, this week is really the engagement in the discussion of the practice on policy community. They are very, um, I would say, vocable and in the good sense in the discussion going on here. So it means that there are really excitement, interest to really do things differently, and that's really positive. We just need to make sure that that excitement stays at after the conference. That was myself, Charlotte Thomason, and Sydney Carbonick 
interviewing Annalyn Puyal-Richard on Future Earth. Next up, we'll be hearing from Sydney Karbenik, speaking with Thomas Day from the New Climate Institute on the co-benefits of climate action. Uh, so my name is Thomas Day. Uh, I work for New Climate Institute. We're a uh, think tank, um, not-for-profit research institute um, kind of organization working on uh, all fields of climate policy. Um, so personally, I'm working on the one side at the international level on um, doing research to influence in what direction could the climate negotiations go. So we do a lot of work at the UN level, for example. Uh, on the other side, uh, I'm working with some specific developing countries and with some uh, some subnational actors as well uh, to advise them on uh, the development of their climate policies and the integration of those into uh, what other agendas are happening in the cities. So the panel you spoke on, from science to action. The thing I really wanted you to speak to was those two examples you gave, enhanced bus networks and retrofitting buildings. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about the health benefits, social benefits? Sure, so um, these are two actions which, uh, well, especially for retrofit, well, actually for both, where the economic benefits have been well understood for quite a long time. There are still a lot of um, social political barriers in getting things off the ground. Um, some of them, some of the other sort of benefits are a little less well known. So we've been looking into, um, although there's an understanding between the synergies of uh, these positive impacts, uh, we've been trying to develop tools that can be then used by policymakers. So for building retrofit, um, we've looked into what does that mean in terms of uh, job creation and household energy savings. Um, the interesting, so there's a huge amount of jobs available from this. That's uh, really the outcomes are quite dramatic in the scale. Uh, so we see that there could be uh, one and a half million jobs nearly created uh, from North American cities uh, together if they would follow a 1.5 or 2 degree compatible trajectory uh, for building retrofit, which is equivalent to approximately 12% of unemployment at the moment. So that's really huge. And for household savings, um, then there's the potential to be increasing um, annual savings rates and uh, disposable income uh, by depending on your income group by somewhere between sort of three and five percent with the larger benefits coming for the lowest income groups. Um, so it's really a uh, pro-poor measure at the same time. For bus networks we've mostly been looking at um, air pollution impacts and the impact on health. Transport is the um, in cities is the sole uh, major contributor to uh, local air pollutants um, and the technologies that change that uh, completely. They've been available for a long time. Uh, many cities are rolling them out. There's really not any need to not do anymore. It's, uh, um, it's really a drastic situation that people are dying of air pollution every year, uh, about 50,000 across North America every year. Uh, and nothing is happening to change this while the technology is already there. Uh, so by enhancing the bus networks at least, uh, you could reduce about 6,000 deaths a year in North America. That's, by, that's not due necessarily to the emissions of the buses themselves, but the impact that those changes have on bringing people away from um, private vehicle use. So in terms of multiple benefits, how can initiatives like these um, not only benefit health 
and the economy, but also help reduce inequalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's the most important thing, and uh, from my perspective, at least. Um, so, I think the important thing at the at the moment these days is not thinking about how should climate change action or what is the way to share the burden of effort for climate change action it's really more about thinking now how should um how should the opportunities be shared it's not about burdens it's about opportunities so the transition will happen the transition to the low carbon economy will happen it is happening um electrification the closure of fossil fuel extraction industries these things are definitely in progress they will happen the question is not about that but when um, this will create, like we've said, a lot of benefits and a lot of industries, a lot more jobs, but it will also create the loss of some industries, the loss of some jobs. Uh, there are potential, there's potential for pro-poor outcomes, but there's also potential for quite catastrophic outcomes for equality um, if these things aren't addressed. So I think what's really important uh, to note from all this is that for the people who are most likely to be um, the marginalized groups who are most likely to be disadvantaged, um, cities that have a high reliance on fossil fuel industries, for example, Edmonton, or groups that have potentially less say in the political agenda, they really have the most incentive to be the pioneers at the moment, uh, to recognize these changes are coming. Uh, we need to be at the front of defining how they happen. We need to be arming ourselves with the evidence on what are going to be the benefits, who's going to get them, and how can we make sure that we get, um, that we lobby to get uh, the right part of, of that pie, so to speak. So, uh, last question. Mm -hmm. Why do you do what you do? Um, yeah, so, yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, for me personally, I am coming from a development background. Uh, I'm extremely interested in or concerned about the way that um, the situation that many countries continue to find themselves in and it's a situation that doesn't change, um, that there's dividing wealth gap and there's increasing inequalities. Uh, I identified personally from uh, a while ago that climate change appears to be the vehicle for, or the most likely vehicle for changing that. Um, all of the outcomes that are in the right direction in terms of reducing emissions and increasing uh, resilience to climate change, also all of the outcomes you need to bring socially disadvantaged groups out of their current situation. Um, if you look at the sustainable development goals and you match that up to climate change mitigation options and you see that climate change action really is action for all of these other things, for health, prosperity, for equity. Um, so that's what uh, drives me and that's what drives us. Um, we're not for profit, so we do it for the impact, um, not for anything else. Do you find it hard to stay motivated considering it's such a big task? Not really. Um, we see, I mean, there's so much happening. It's, uh, like I said, the transition's already happening. It's just too slow. Uh, it needs to accelerate. Um, it's very easy to stay motivated when you see so many positive things happening. We work with um, with countries and cities uh, that are in the middle of these things and they're trying to work their way around the problems. But as you're working with them on it, then the things are happening and you get, it's really tangible. Uh, so it's not about creating noise from the corner of the room and hoping that people 
pick up on it. Uh, it's really about helping um, to find the solutions to accelerate the transition. Um, but the transition's happening and it's exciting. Um, so yeah, it's not it's easy to stay motivated. That was Sydney Karbenick interviewing Thomas Day with the New Climate Institute. Both of these interviews have been brought to you by the recent conference on cities and climate change, held by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and hosted here in Edmonton, Alberta. You can expect more interviews from the conference and some of our reflections in the coming months. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlotte Thomason, Sidney Karbenick, Amanda Rooney, Carter Gorzitza, and Dylan Hall. I've been your host, and I will catch you next week. <laughs>